All right. Um, thank you for indulging me here for a little time of intercessory prayer. This is a good thing. We're going to move on, though, because the heat advisory starts at 10 a.m., so we're, we want to make sure that we want to beat the heat, so to speak. We've been in a sermon series called Lessons from Lockdown, and we've been looking at the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, the book of Philippians, we call it, and we will be starting at uh, chapter 2, verse 7 through 9. I'm reading from the NIV, and so feel free to turn on your smartphone, in your Bible, or you can just listen as I read this. Actually, we're going to back up uh, to uh, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That is, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Now, if you've been with us, you, you may be wondering, why did I read a scripture that we actually read last week, too? We're going to spend some more time in this. Much ink has been spilt on this part of the letter and this part of the, uh, scripture throughout the centuries. Uh, but today I'd like us to just think about the concept of emptying ourselves. Emptying ourselves. After changing my uh, major in undergrad about five times because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, I landed on uh, comparative world religions and psychology. And I remember being in a course on Buddhism. And I remember learning that the essential tenet of Buddhism is to extinguish desire in oneself. You see, the Buddhists understand that the desires that we have are often at the root of our vice and our problems and our divisions, kind of our over-desires. And so the, the premise goes something like, if we can just empty ourselves of all desire, then we can be free to achieve what they call nirvana, a desireless state. Now, there's kind of a built-in contradiction in Buddhism, if you really think about it. You're not supposed to want anything or desire anything, but you have to desire to not have desires so that you can be desireless, right? And so you better really want to not have desires, but not want it too much, but want it enough so that you don't have desires. And I think if you look at the world religions, Christianity stands so unique among them because the world religions are human beings attempt to, through right behavior and thinking and activity, become right with God or the universe, whereas Christianity is God coming down to meet us on our terms, trying to make the broken relationship and the broken world right through God's initiative, not through human beings' religious activity. It's very different, and that occurred to me in, in college, and that was part of my call into ministry and yet, if you look at the world religions, there is always some nod to parts of the truth about how the universe works. They're not all equal. They do not all lead to the same path, but there are some insights. And I would say the Buddhists are right about this. There is an emptying of ourself that is required if we are to live in step with our creator. But, but they go too far. They would say to empty yourself of every desire, 
Followers of Christ are people who imitate the attitude of Christ who emptied himself of certain things for certain purposes. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. And it comes really in the form of a few questions. So if you're taking notes, really three questions and then a final thought. That's where we're going to do and we'll close with communion. The first question is this, are we ready to empty ourselves of status? Are you, are we ready to empty ourselves of status? Because the, the story goes that God became a human being and the son did not grasp onto his rights to be equal with God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, of the same substance, of the same rank, of the same person. And the Son says, you know, it is my right to hold on to my divinity, and yet I'm going to empty myself of my status for a time to pursue a people. And then, the Apostle Paul picks up on this and he says, make your attitude, your mindset, the very same that Christ had who emptied himself. So he's essentially saying, are you ready to empty yourself of status for a time for a purpose? To carry on a military uh, example, since we, we started talking about that, imagine a Navy SEAL. Have you seen the Navy SEALs in the movies? I mean, when they're really full battle rattle, they, they've got everything. They've got the night vision goggles. They've got the scuba gear set up. They've got the wire cutters, like four or five weapons. I mean, they come with so much gear. It's, it's like a, a military version of Walmart on their back. And they, they walk, I've seen them, and they, they somehow just walk with ease, but they've just, they've just got like a whole department store of death on them. And it's like, wow, look at these guys. They, they almost don't cast a human shadow because they're just so full of gear. Now imagine for a minute a Navy SEAL was given the opportunity to rescue somebody, but he had to get on a train, and it required that he check all of his luggage, all of his gear, in a, in a big green sack that the military provides, and lock that up and put that in the baggage. And he had a choice to make. He could empty himself of all of the gear that kind of sets him apart, that allows him to do the unique things that other warriors can't do. And if he's willing to do this, he can get on the train and he can go on the rescue mission. But if he's not, he, he can't. And so he chooses in compassion, no, I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden, he takes all that gear off, the night vision goggles, the weapons, the wire cutters, the scuba fins, the wetsuit, the gas mask, all of it, and he puts it in holding. Now, does that still belong to him? Yes. Does he have access to it? No. And that is a little bit of the picture we're given in Philippians. Paul is saying, as he's writing in prison, and he's writing to a group of discouraged people in an empire, a Roman empire, that's hostile to Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's saying, don't forget, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, emptied himself voluntarily of all of his status, all of his weapons, all of his divinity, his omnis, have you guys heard of, if you've studied theology, you've got the omnipresence, omnipotence, so all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing. And, and if you read through the Gospels, you're wondering, how can he be fully God and fully human being? That is the claim, because he's not everywhere at once. How, how does he heal some people, but he doesn't heal everybody? Well, because he emptied himself. He checked his gear on the train. And so you see just like you would see in a highly trained Navy SEAL, these 
moments of miraculous power, and yet it's limited. If you are called, and I am called, to mimic our Messiah, our Savior, what would it look like to be fully ready to empty ourselves of status for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Think about it. We're entering into a new reality as a country, whereas 50 years ago, the Judeo-Christian perspective was generally agreed upon as kind of the umbrella of morality. And most people kind of grew up in some sort of Judeo-Christian religious tradition. Now the nuns have it, and I don't mean the, the nuns with rulers. I mean, I mean people who say, what is your religious affiliation? And then they say, none. There are more nuns than there ever have been before, and less nuns, if you use the other way of thinking. There are more people who are just spiritually apathetic, who don't presume or assume that Christianity is true, that there is a God at the center of all things, that it, who, he is sovereign. And so, as a result, the influence that followers of Christ have will logically be less immediate and less obvious and less powerful. In other words, in a very real sense, you're being asked to give up your night vision and your scuba gear. No one is going to hold a microphone in your face as a Christian leader and say, what policy, because we all generally believe in Christian values, would be best for human flourishing? And let's just implement that. And the question becomes, are we willing to follow Jesus Christ to give up our status. After all, the text says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant or slave. Some translations will say the Greek word here is doulos. And there's actually a confusion here. A lot of uh, skeptics and atheists will say, how can Christianity be true? It endorses slavery. Even Jesus is saying he's becoming a slave. And that is a misconception. Uh, In the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, slavery, and certainly in the ancient Hebrew Empire, Slavery was not akin to the African slave trade. It was not going to another shore, grabbing another person like cattle and putting them to work until they die. There was no social safety net in the ancient world. There was no stimulus check. There was no welfare system. If you ran out of luck and you were disabled or you were down on your employment momentum, and you just couldn't figure out how to put food on the table, there was no other way except for this way where you could indenture yourself to other people. You could take the form of a servant, a doulos, a slave. And in a real sense, it is humbling yourself to, to, the, to the lowest degree. But in the other sense, it's not as inhumane as the African slave trade because there's an end to it. You see, you could work your way out of that poverty. You didn't have to split up your family. In some ways, some scholars have argued that it's actually more humane than some of our social safety nets that tend to break apart families and tend to take away meaningful work. I'm um, constantly working with veterans who go through the VA system, and if they can prove that they're unemployable, the VA will give them 100% disability, but as long as they don't work. What happens to people when they stop working? They stop feeling useful when they're told you can get money, but you better not earn a paycheck. It's an ugly thing. There's kind of a spiral, a lack of meaning. And so in the ancient world, there was a level of dignity, and yet it was total humility. And, and God in the flesh says, I'm going to take on the form of an indentured service. 
servant. Now think of the irony of that. If there's any being in the universe that does not need to enter into indentured servitude to pay someone back, it would be the creator. And that's the very thing he chooses to do with his life. And the other irony is this. We tend to think that status equals influence. If I'm popular, if I'm a public figure on Twitter or Facebook, then I will shape the masses. If I hold political office, if I command troops, then I have influence. Jesus never commanded an army. He never held an office. He never had a social media account. Nobody in his day really knew how impactful he would become, and yet he is by far the most influential person to ever live, and he did it not by grabbing and hoarding and insisting on his proper status, but by open-handedly giving it up. If that is possible in the ancient Near East, if an itinerant rabbi carpenter can turn the world upside down by giving up all of his divinity and serving other people by relinquishing status, what might God do in your life, man or woman, if you are willing to do the next right thing but not cling to the status. As the famous quote goes, progress is limitless when people don't care who gets the credit. So are we ready to give up status? Are we ready to be a doulos, a servant, someone who looks at other people and treats them like a master, advancing their good, and who ultimately, as Christ modeled, was the servant first of the Father. Whatever you want to do, Lord, Father God, that's what I'm going to do. Secondly, are we ready to give up security? Philippians 2, 7, the second part of the verse says this, being made in human likeness. Now, to be a human being is to experience insecurity. And if you have ever given birth to a, a human being, ladies, or men, if you have ever sat shotgun and watched that event, you will see how true this is. The very act of being born into the human experience is almost comically ironic if you are God who never had a beginning. To, to put yourself in that level of vulnerability with the blood, with the gasping of air, with the violence of birth, we start our lives out with a scream. And think about that. From the infant's point of view, you're in this warm, secure, perfect little environment, and you're thrust into an environment where, where a doctor is kind of slapping you on the butt, and, and you know, you're cold, and you want to go back in, and ah! From the very first moment you came into this atmosphere, you felt a profound level of insecurity. Think about that. Your earliest memory is one of insecurity. And the human experience, if we're honest, is full of insecurity. What if this happens? What if I get sick? What if they don't wear a mask? What if they don't stop at the red light? What if they don't have insurance? What if the worst happens? What if the doctor calls? What if the surgery doesn't go right? What if the anesthesiologist isn't credible? What if this happens? And it would be very easy to live in one continued state of crescendo-like anxiety and worry over security. Think about it. There's more to worry about by way of security today than, than any human being has ever worried about before. Granted, we live in a safer society in general, and yet the ancient world didn't have to worry about cybersecurity. 
about someone stealing their identity. They didn't have to think about ring doorbells. And yet we have to think about cybersecurity, the security of our health, the security of our children, the security of our 401k, the security of our church family, the security of our nation, and it goes on and on and on. And God becomes a human being, volunteers to experience the ultimate level of insecurity. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to what? To death. Verse 8. What is that thing that makes us feel most insecure? Isn't it death? Of course it's death. And it's not just any death. It's death on a cross. The Romans were were brilliant at torturing people, and they had perfected over the years a way to inflict the most amount of pain and humiliation on a victim. Crucifixion was designed not to kill quickly, but to kill slowly, to be painful. It was a horrible, gruesome blend of a slow, torturous death, but also a shaming, public, humiliating death. You were naked, and you were spread out on a beam of wood in front of your friends and family and anybody who would dare to know you. I mean, think there's really no worse way to die if you really think about it. And God, who created a perfectly good universe with sentient beings who could choose good or evil, seeing that certain beings chose evil and selfishness and sin enters into the system, devises a plan where he would become so self-emptying that he would empty himself of security, all security, and he would model for us the worst-case scenario. A lot of uh, mental health professionals will say to someone with a severe anxiety disorder, I need you to start thinking about the worst thing that could actually happen, which makes them more anxious for a time. But the, the theory goes that once you actually go there and you start thinking how improbable that is, And then you start thinking, even if that did happen, would all my fears come to bear? Would it be as bad as it is? Isn't that what God is doing here? He's saying, I've shown you, not not led you to think about, I've demonstrated for you the worst case scenario. The most insecure place a human being can be was on that cross. And I became obedient even to that level of insecurity. And so now would you not all die on crosses? That's not all of our our literal fate, but, but would you metaphorically take up your cross is what Christ is saying. He's, he's asking me and you, are you ready to empty yourselves of security? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you can't have a VPN on your computer or cybersecurity? Does that mean you can't, you know, care about your level of security in your banking? Does that mean you can't lock your doors? Does that mean you can't practice self-defense? No. What it does mean is that we need to surrender the idol of security. An idol is a good thing that a human being turns into an ultimate thing. It's something that never deserves to be in the spot of worship of God. Some of us, if we're honest, we worship security. We bow to the God of security. And we lose a lot of sleep over the demon of insecurity. And maybe God is saying, You need to empty yourself, not of everything, like the Buddhists say, but of something quite specific, in this case, your idol of security. 
one of the things I had to learn going to war was simply this. It was as if God was asking me the question, Mike, are you ready to transfer your trust from temporal security, temporary security, to eternal security? It's a very vulnerable thing to be a chaplain in a war zone. You don't carry a weapon, which is kind of fun because everyone fights over protecting you because everyone else is armed to the teeth and they see you as kind of a lucky rabbit's foot and they, and they say, ah, come here, I'll protect you. But I remember walking in the dark uh, in Iraq or Kuwait somewhere and there was a wild pack of dogs. Dogs in, in that part of the world are not cute and friendly. A lot of them have rabies. And it's like they could smell the fact that I was not armed. And I was walking to the bathroom and there's one dog and they're very mangy and you can see the ribs and they're wild. And then there's two dogs and then there's three dogs. Then I'm wondering how really bad I have to go to the bathroom. Maybe I just go back to my quarters, but I actually really had to go to the bathroom. So I keep walking and I remember thinking to myself, this would be a terrible way to go. Mauled by a pack of wild rabid dogs. (laughs) What am I going to beat them with a Bible? And I just had to ask myself, whether it's the rockets or the rabid dogs, at some level, Mike, you don't have complete control over your temporary security. You really don't. And the secret is, even those who were armed didn't. I buried a number of them who were very well armed. None of us have the security that we imagine we have. I mean, think of it. God literally is ensuring that you are alive for the next 60 seconds. If he does not want that to continue, it does not happen. We're that connected. We're like the, the, the computer that is plugged into the cord at 0%. And the minute you pull that cord, the computer is no longer animated. It's not functioning. But to the degree that cord stays in that port, we are alive. And so God calls us to have the same attitude that his son has, to empty ourselves of the need, the idol of security. I don't know what the application of that is for you, but maybe it's just to take a big, deep breath and say, God, I'm sorry that my whole life has been a fury of attempting to feel secure. Help me to feel eternally secure enough to take risks, to be courageous, to be loving, to be sacrificial in this life knowing that my ultimate security rests in eternal life. Now, to be fair, some of you, and I love this about Mercy Road, are not believers, and you come and you listen online or in person, and you're skeptics. If that is you, the reason we can have this, not cavalier attitude, but a courageous attitude, a humble courage towards our security here and now, is because we have this deep abiding trust We know that we know that we know that God has us on the other side of death. And if that's not you, I would ask you to consider to have a conversation with the God who made you. To simply say, God, I I don't know if it's all true. If it is true, would you make it real to me? And would you show me how to activate this security? Show me how to accept your forgiving love. It'll change your life. Thirdly, The third question builds on this. So the first question is, are we ready to empty ourselves of the status that we would like? Are we ready to empty ourselves of security like Christ did? And the third question is, are we ready to empty ourselves of sovereignty? And sovereignty is a big word, and it's not the best word, but it begins with S, and preachers like all words that begin with the same letter. So if you think back, sovereign is another name for a king or a queen. It's someone whose will is done 
precisely as they want their will done in their kingdom. And, and if you're honest in your, in your heart of hearts, don't you want to be the sovereign of your own life? I mean, let's just own our family of origin, America. I'm proud to be an American. I fought for our country. I would have died for our country. And I love the 4th of July. And we're also celebrating a time where we rebelled against a sovereign. And we said, no, you're not going to be sovereign of our life. We're going to be sovereign. And we won. And a nation was born. But, but when a nation is born out of rebellion and independence, don't think for a second that that does not run hot through your veins and mine. And it has a way of sometimes spilling over into our relationship with God where we say, God, you're really great as like a professional consultant that I could hire and I can take the bits I like and agree with and implement those and high five you for that. But anything you don't, you know, that doesn't come across as, as wise to me, I'm just going to respectfully disagree. Because after all, we're pretty much equals. You just have some subject matter expertise that I might not have. But overall, we're basically the same IQ. Are we ready to empty ourselves of the right to call the shots? I, I bought a little fishing boat a few months ago. Apparently boats are up in coronavirus. Anyone else buy a boat in coronavirus? I got a heck of a deal, 1800 bucks for a little fishing boat. Hopefully it continues to float. But it, it seems solid enough. And anyways, I took my kids out to Orchard Lake, my boys and the neighbor boy, to fish. And they didn't want to fish. They wanted to just jump over the side and swim in the 85 degree water, which I don't blame them. So pretty soon I'm out there too. Now I want you to imagine for a moment, because I did see just a flash of lightning and then it went away. But the thought started to roll in my head. What if, what if in the middle of the lake here with these boys, all of a sudden, here I am, a new boat owner, and, and, and a squall comes up, a real big storm. How would I handle that? You know, I was giving them turns driving the boat. It's an outboard motor. Have you ever driven an outboard motor? It has a very <laughs> reactive touch. And so, you know, when, when children under 10 drive it, it's super smooth, right? So they're taking turns driving the boat, jumping over the boat, driving the boat, jumping over the boat. I'm there kind of making sure that, you know, we, are, we don't all drown. Imagine that that storm started to come up and it just rocked my 14-foot aluminum seam to the point where the waves are starting to come. I would have to be an absolute fool or someone that social services should, should investigate immediately if I said, you know, despite the storm, seven-year-old son, continue to drive, please. You know what's best. You can navigate these waters, I imagine. And if not you, I'm sure your, your brother who has lived to the ripe old wise age of nine, and if not him, Henry the neighbor is darn near 12, between the three of you, I'm sure you can handle this, and I'll just sit back as a benevolent sovereign who has completely abdicated my sovereignty to you. Some of us, if we're honest, this is what our lives look like. We're in the middle of a storm on an outboard 14-foot sea nymph. God of the universe is in the boat right next to us, and we say, I got this, God. Don't touch. Only I know how to get out of this storm. Look how good I am on the outboard, God. For some of us, we've experienced deep pain and regret and consequences and hurt, and we've hurt others because we have, in our white-knuckled pride and stubborn grasping, insisted on driving the boat in the storm. What would it look like to follow our Savior? 
to say a resounding yes, Lord, to the question, are you now ready to empty yourself of sovereignty, of your piloting license? This is what Jesus modeled. Not only did he check his special forces baggage, he said, I now relinquish my ability to call my own agenda. Think about your calendar. Think of how sovereign you are over that. It's just a bunch of white little spaces on a computer and you get to fill the little blocks with whatever you want to do. Netflix, complaining, exercising, just kidding. Going to movies, doing whatever I want. Or you could say, God, this is not my time. This is not my life. I'm no longer going to drive the boat. Whether the lake is still or stormy, you tell me what to put on that block. Now, does God want you to make decisions? Yes. Does God speak to me audibly every morning and just say, here's, here's your calendar, Mike? No. He wants us to grow up into wisdom and to, to at times drive the boat with his hand on ours, teaching us, showing us, steering us like a good father. And yet, many of us are not willing to, to just say, God, you're sovereign. Are you willing to empty yourself of status, of security, of sovereignty? Are you ready to let God call the shots in your life? The best answer to this question is to go to that one area in your life that you've been resisting for years, that you say, anything but this, Lord. Your greatest fear that he would ask you to give up may just be your greatest freedom once you choose to give it up. Jesus modeled this. We're going to close with communion. And uh, before we uh, ready our hearts for that, a final point, if you're taking notes. The fourth point is this. When we are emptied of self, we invite God to do specific things. What do we invite him to do? Well, to define our status. And this is really freeing. You don't have to keep performing. You don't have to be really good in your religious port, report card to be loved by God. God already loves you so much. He doesn't care how well you drive the boat. He doesn't care how fancy your special forces equipment is or is not. He just loves you enough and he died for you to declare that your status is so perfect that when God looks at you, it's as if he looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ who lived the life you couldn't live and yet he sees you. It's not a magic trick. It's not like he just sees Jesus and you just get absorbed and he forgets your name. No, he sees every detail of you and he accepts and loves you just as he loves Jesus and that love will eventually make us lovely. It will change our character. And when we let God define our status, it is amazingly freeing because we don't have to be popular. We don't have to be winning in the eyes of the world. We don't have to have immediate and obvious influence in moving the ball forward in ways that we think we need to move the ball forward. We just have to show up and rest in the love that the Father has for us. And then the status comes through the love of God. So we let God define our status. We let God preserve our security. Preserve our security. I remember growing up, my dad took me to Alaska twice. My mom worked for the airlines, and I, I was probably eight or nine, so I, I have memories of this second trip. And we were out in grizzly country, which is always a great parenting move. Dad, I love, love you. Um, and there was this, like, toothless, crazy old guy that walked up and said, you guys got to be careful. There's grizzlies. Don't you have weapons? 
And I remember as a kid really thinking, wow, this would be a bummer to be eaten by a grizzly bear. And yet, because I was with my dad, I still had that irrational sense that my dad could probably punch out a grizzly bear. You know, the ones that little kids have. And I just felt this calm that said, okay, there's bears out here. But my dad is going to preserve my security. My dad wouldn't let anything happen to me. And knowing my dad, he probably had a bunch of guns. Who knows? The poor grizzly that crossed us. What if that childlike trust in our ultimate security is what God wants for you, has always wanted for you? What if that is the source and the secret to your anxiety? What if today, like a famous defense attorney used to... uh, advise his clients. You just put your palms up on your lap like this, and you just said, God, I just give up this anxiety about security. I'm going to allow you to preserve my security. This is what Jesus models. He's staring torturous death in the face with a Roman guard at hand in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knows in his heart that if the Father wants it and wills it, a legion of angels could come in a second, that at no time he's ever in real peril because eternally he will sit at the right hand of the Father and that is your story too, Christian. Let God preserve your security. When we are emptied of self, when we practice emptying ourselves of ourself, we invite God to navigate in his sovereignty. We let him drive the boat. So let me end with this. What is God asking you to empty yourself of in this season? Human beings are capable of taking in lots of information very quickly. God has designed our brains to do that. Where we struggle is applying even a little bit of application in a timely fashion. And so in general, if you ever hear a three or a four point sermon, just grab one and say, God, this is the thing I'm going to act on. That status thing really resonated with me. Or the security thing, that's my deal. Or, or, or the sovereignty, letting you lead, I'm going to do that in a practical way this week. What is your application, my friend? What is your lesson from lockdown in week five of this series? What is God asking you to empty yourself of this season? And as we contemplate that, let's prepare our hearts for communion. Ari, could you grab me a little cup there? I left it by my, my chair. On the night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed by his friend, he gathered his band of disciples around him. It was Passover. It was a meal that they were very familiar with. It was an annual festival. Jerusalem was overflowing. And he took the Passover bread and he said, this is actually my body, which is a new interpretation, a fresh take on the Passover bread because it had always signified an unblemished lamb that was used in the ancient Israelites' story of freedom, of being released from slavery in Egypt. The the lamb was sacrificed so that blood, the life source, the cost of sin could be placed over the door frame of the Israelites so the angel of judgment and death and the natural consequence of sin would pass over that household. And Jesus said, That, the bread, the bread that signifies all of this, this Passover bread, I am the lamb. That's what this is always pointed to. And he said to his bewildered disciples, take and eat, now that you understand what this actually means. So I would invite you to take and eat. 
After the supper, he took the, the wine, the chalice, which represented a covenant. A covenant is a mixture of law and love. It's an unbreakable promise. And he said, this is the new covenant. This is the new interpretation, the right interpretation, the fulfilled interpretation of this promise that Yahweh, God, has made between human beings. This is my blood that will be shed for you. His disciples were just catching up at this point. But he's telling them, and they would remember this and write it down. He said, when you meet, when you gather, do this. Take this, drink this blood, and be reminded that it is my blood that forgives sin. Would you take and drink? Lord, would you forgive us corporately and individually of sin? We bring our sins of omission, things that we've done that, it, that we know are wrong and that we didn't know were wrong, but we bring it all to you and we thank you that you wipe it all clean. Past, present, future sin of omission and commission. The things we've left undone, omission, and the things we've committed, commission. Even, even the right things that we've done with the wrong sinful motivation we bring before you and we ask, Lord, for your forgiving love, your blood to purify us and to make us light travelers who do not limp around in shame and guilt but who actually embrace the day. Father, help us to follow your lead by emptying ourselves of this incessant need for status, knowing that you've already defined and declared our status as beloved sons and daughters in Christ. Lord, help us to empty ourselves of security, this need to feel secure, even though we live in your hand. You preserve us, that you see us as valuable. And no matter what we go through in this world, we are eternally secure in you. And that is ultimately all that matters. And Father, help us to let you drive the boat. Let you steer those areas that, that we've been holding on too tightly to. Help us to just be open-handed. May you be sovereign in our lives, in this church, in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.